This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Words of integration and guidance from Walter Brueggemann. The Bible, our mothers and fathers have always known, is not self-evident and self-interpreting. Rather, the Bible requires and insists upon human interpretation that is inescapably subjective, necessarily provisional, and inevitably disputatious. The Spirit meets us always afresh in our faithful reading, in each new time, place, and circumstance. Anyone who imagines their particular reading is settled and eternal simply does not pay attention to the process in which we are all engaged liberals and conservatives. I suspect that interpretation, albeit subjective, provisional, and disputatious, is a God-given resistance to monologue. There is not one voice in scripture, and to give any one voice in scripture or in tradition authority to silence other voices surely distorts the text and misconstrues the liveliness that the text itself engenders in interpretive community. A reading of scripture from Psalm 111, as rendered by Nan Merrill. Praise the beloved, O my soul. I will give thanks to you with my whole heart. To all who will listen, I will tell of your goodness. Wondrous is creation, great builder. I take pleasure in pondering your work. Full of honor and integrity are your teachings. Those who follow them will find new life. You lift the hearts of those who suffer. You come to them in their need. Your steadfast love is food for the soul, nourishment in times of fear. You are ever mindful of your covenant, a very presence to the weary and afflicted. Your word is truth to those with ears to hear. Your precepts are sure. Written on the hearts of your people, they are to be lived forever with faith-filled love and assurance. You bring new life to the world. Yes, life in abundance is your gift to us. Holy and glorious is your name. Reverence for you, O Holy One, is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding for all who practice it. Your spirit endures forever. Hear what the spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to Mark 1, 21 to 28. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed and kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Amen. 
Sometimes it's hard to know what to make of what we read in the Bible. Our story this morning is about an exorcism. Perfect. Right? We can all apply that to our, to our daily lives. This is one of those times where the lectionary gives you a text and you think, an exorcism, great. I was just thinking that what would be really relevant right now is an exorcism. Now the Bible has plenty of other unusual stories, like Joshua 10, 13, which says, And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? I guess I didn't know that. And then it says, The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set, about, to set for about a whole day. I love that phrasing. The sun wasn't in a hurry, you know. You guys need some more time to kill your enemies? Just keep on, keep on doing it. You would think if the sun was going to stay in the sky for an extra long day, it'd be like a great day of sailing or, you know, a, a great picnic or a great hike, you know, but here we have something else happening. Or in 1 Samuel 28, uh, we see Saul going out disguised in the middle of the night to seek out a witch at Endor who can summon up people from the dead. You see, Saul needs some advice, and the person he thinks of is Samuel. But the only problem is Samuel has died. And so as we read this story, we might expect in the Bible him to find out, oh, well, actually, people can't be summoned from the dead because this is the Bible and we don't believe that. But instead he goes to this witch and she actually summons Samuel from the dead. It actually happens. And Samuel says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? He's a little cranky and didn't want to be disturbed. So the moral of the story being don't bother dead people, I suppose. <laughs> so today we have an exorcism, which may conjure up 80s movies with Catholic priests and lots of shrieking. But this can't be an insignificant episode, right? I think it has to be there for a reason. After all, this is the first public act in the Gospel of Mark, which is the earliest of the Gospels. Now, sometimes we're told that Jesus' first public act or miracle was turning the water into wine. And that is how it's related in the Gospel uh, of John. John is the latest gospel, and John is also a gospel which is less concerned with historicity and particularly the historical order in which things happen. John often is moving things around to happen for a particular purpose in his narrative. But this is Mark, the earliest, the shortest of the gospels, a gospel that's often noticed, noted for its uh, economy of words. Mark doesn't waste a lot of extra verbiage. So if he's going to tell us a story... There's got to be something there, particularly in this first really public act of Jesus as he begins his ministry. So I think it's worth our while to probe a little deeper and see what's, see what's going on. And there are a few ways to approach this text. One is what we might call a cursory or a face value reading. We see that Jesus meets a man with an unclean spirit and casts it out. So we simply take the text at its word that this is exactly what happened. He goes into the synagogue and someone is there who is possessed and Jesus has the ability to cast out uh, this demon or unclean spirit. 
But of course, this reading uh, leaves us perhaps with certain questions. Can people be possessed by evil spirits? And if so, does this some, is this something that still happens today? Or was this something that only happened in ancient times? And if we think it doesn't happen today, we might wonder, well, what is the relevance of this story? Or what can we take away from it? Or we might ask and go one step further and say, do evil spirits even exist? So that's a uh, cursory or face value reading. And we might move from there into a more modern reading. And here we might consult modern medical anthropology and probe a little deeper into whether there are such things as demon possession today or whether that might just be an ancient way of dealing with what today we might call epilepsy. You know, if someone has a seizure in ancient times, they didn't have words for that. Uh, or was this an instance of schizophrenia or some other mental disorder? This would be a way of demythologizing the text. We would be saying, well, in the ancient world, they believed in things like angels and demons, and when things happened uh, that they couldn't explain, well, the world was full of these things, and there was often a supernatural explanation behind it. And that was often the first response, whereas for us today, we might say, well, maybe we ought to make that as a last response, because now we have the ability to medically diagnose such things, or we just don't talk in that way anymore. So it's a bit tempting to go that route and just leave it there. But I think in the end, uh, that's also a bit unsatisfying because, again, I think it kind of leaves this episode a bit seemingly irrelevant. It's quaint that Jesus is portrayed as taking care of something that we know doesn't really happen. This also, this reading, has the danger of putting us in a we-know-better-than-the-text sort of position. Now, uh, we're certainly in an advantaged position in many ways, right, over people uh, who lived in ancient times in terms of scientific discovery, medical technology, and a whole host of other things, right? That's absolutely true, and we are in a certain privileged position when we read these old texts, but we're also in a disadvantaged position because we weren't there, and the text is saying things and experiences and using language that, you know, this is through multiple translations, right, written in a different language. And so let's not move too quickly to this position that says we know better than the text. So what other options do we have for approaching a story like this? Well, I would suggest a symbolic socio-political reading. That's what you were going to guess, I know. Or, um, what, so this might be what's called a symbolic reproduction of social conflict. In other words, I think what this story may be doing is giving us, holding up a mirror, or maybe even better, giving us a window into something larger that's happening. So here we have this one story, right, of Jesus and this demon-possessed man, but it's hinting at some wider things going on. So Jesus, in his first act, enters into this synagogue, and he immediately faces some opposition. So I think here, in this story, we're hinted at a larger opposition that's really unfolding in the world at that time and what's about to come in the life and work of Jesus. 
Our text says they went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. All right, seems like a normal thing for uh, Jesus to do. But then it says they were astounded at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So you can imagine how that's going to go over, right? Scribes being sort of religious leadership at that time. Jesus enters one of their religious centers, begins teaching, and the people there are like, whoa, this guy's got something that our religious leaders don't have. Well, how's that going to go over? Right? Not too well. Not too well. The scribes could be thought of as the religious leadership uh, and the authority that they have of, let's say, the scribal establishment. That sort of undergirds the Jewish social order in many ways, right? How things go in a society is determined by uh, structures, systems, and people in authority sort of setting the rules, making it so. And if you begin to undercut some of that authority, things can get a little dicey, things start to unravel, people don't like it. And so suddenly this man with an unclean spirit represents, I believe, a larger opposition to Jesus. How dare you come in here and start teaching with your own authority, undercutting what we're doing and what we've established. And notice what this demon-possessed man says. Have you come to destroy us? Have you come to destroy us? When your own power is threatened, feels like you're being destroyed. We might consider the current situation happening at Michigan State University. Those in power are finally being held to account for the decades of sexual abuse, and it seems there's more to come. And so for the president who resigned, the athletic director who resigned, it feels to them like they're being destroyed. Why do you think girl after girl was told to be quiet? and case after case was brushed aside or handled inappropriately because power was being mishandled. The most vulnerable on campus were not being protected, and finally some light is being shed on it. Well, similarly, Jesus is about to shed some light on practices that were leaving people out. Jesus is about to shine some light on power that was being misused and mishandled. And to those presently in power, that feels like a threat. It feels like they are being destroyed. And so opposition arises uh, symbolically in our story with this man with the evil spirit. And as we'll see throughout the Gospel of Mark, that opposition is only going to mount as Jesus does uh, episode after episode that is seen as undercutting the way things are and the way things should go. And in fact, just in chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus again in a synagogue. This time a man shows up with a shriveled hand. And it says some were watching him to see what he was doing because they were looking for a way to accuse him. They're saying, this guy's a problem. We've got to take him out. Let's keep a sharp eye. Jesus heals the man with a withered hand. And then at the end of that episode, Mark 3, 6, it says, and the Pharisees and the Herodians collaborated to see how they might put Jesus to death. Mark 3, chapter, the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus ministry is so provocative that they are already ready to kill him. The Pharisees, the religious establishment, the Herodians, the political establishment, working together to say, this guy's a problem. How can we take him out? And all of this, 
I think, is hinted at in this opening public act of Jesus. He enters into a synagogue on the Sabbath day. The synagogue, holy space, right? A holy space in Jewish society. The Sabbath, a holy time. So Jesus, on this sort of pivotal and central moment, right, in the weekly rhythm of life in Jewish culture, he enters into that heart of Jewish society, and he begins to do things a little differently. He begins to shed some light, and people are feeling like he is a threat to the status quo. And so they struggle to name him, as we see happening here in the mouth of this demon. I know who you are, the Holy One of God, because naming someone was a way to control in ancient society. If we can name someone, it means we're one step ahead, or we have power over them, but we'll see that Jesus is going to turn the table soon on this, what's represented, the powers represented in these demonic spirits, because in chapter 5, Jesus is the one naming the evil spirits. And in that case, the one says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And there we see this sort of demonic presence representing an even larger power, the power of Rome. So a lot is happening just in this little incident in Mark chapter 1. That, To be honest, if we're reading this in our kind of quiet time, devotional, just reading the Gospels, Exorcism? No, I'll just keep reading. That's not interesting, or I don't understand it, or, you know, let's skip over that. But there's a lot happening right here. And in fact, uh, Ched Myers refers to this as the first direct action campaign by Jesus, or as I've termed it, the beginning of the resistance. It really marks the beginning of Jesus' effort to bring in the new order of the kingdom of God. Now, we like to think that Jesus came to make us right with God. Why do we have to talk about all this sort of socio-political stuff, right? Didn't Jesus come just to make us right with God? I think yes, absolutely. Or perhaps framed differently, Jesus came to help us realize that we are already right with God. And I think Jesus also came to make us right with each other to make us right with each other, to show us that walls can be torn down, that tables can be made bigger, that hurting can be healed, and that power must not be abused, and that such abuses of power must be confronted. Now, I'm a middle child and a nine on the Enneagram, so I try to avoid all confrontation. Uh, I like to have everyone feel at peace uncomfortable if there's tension or conflict, right? But sometimes for everyone to feel at peace, those who have set the ground rules that exclude and oppress have to be confronted, have to be exposed. Now Jesus doesn't shy away from this because the truth is sometimes healing people is seen as inappropriate. Sometimes setting a place at the table for the outsider is seen as political or confrontational. Might have been nicer, right, to just have an opening story about Jesus at a wedding where he brings more wine and keeps the party going. Right? That's a Jesus we all like. But Jesus knows that a party that doesn't include everyone is no party at all. And so Jesus is going to crash all the parties until they do. And I hope I and we are brave enough to join him.
Amen. Amen. Namaste. Would you pray with me? O God of welcome, O God of inclusion, O God of forgiveness and light, help us to see the ways in which we ourselves have abused our own power, our own position, our own privilege. Help us to see ways that we have excluded others. And help us to see this Jesus who is not afraid to create tension where it was needed. Not for its own sake, but because healing was needed, because repentance was needed, because a new way needed to be shown. Help us to be brave enough to speak truth where truth is needed and to turn around our own lives where that is needed. In Jesus' name, amen. to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org. Mm-hmm.